God is the king of his creation and of everything in it. And yet, humanity's biggest struggle in life is our rejection of God's rule and the following of our own rule. That is the very core of understanding the nature of our relationship with God. That's the core, that's the the beginning point of the gospel message. And that rejection of God's rule or failure to recognize him as even the ruler and the king and our subsequent rejection is in every way fundamental for us to understand how to live in this world in such a way that actually begins to please him. And yet this struggle, this struggle of rule and reign is the struggle that's defined human history forever. And when you look at our culture today, you can hear the echoes of men and women who have asserted their own rule over experience. Os Guinness traces these ideas that begin with the Renaissance and blossomed through the Enlightenment and rose to their climax in the 1960s. A classic statement of the Renaissance view is that of Pico Dea Mirandola as he imagines God addressing Adam and saying, you who are confined by no limits shall determine for yourself your own nature you shall fashion yourself in whatever form you prefer. And throughout the centuries, similar sentiments of self-rule, limitless potential apart from God have been expressed by key and influential thinkers. Back in the 15th century in Italy, Leon Alberti says, a man can do all things if he will. Karl Marx in 19th century Germany, man is free only if he owes his existence to himself. Friedrich Nietzsche in Germany, if there were gods, who could bear not to be gods? Therefore, there are no gods. Herbert Spencer in 19th century England, progress is not an accident but a necessity. Surely must evil and immorality disappear Surely must men become perfect. Walt Whitman, the great author in 19th century England, one's self I sing, a simple separate person. President John F. Kennedy, man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Ayn Rand, the famous author, wrote, man's destiny is to be a self-made soul. And E.O. Wilson, 21st century America, humanity will be positioned godlike to take control of its own ultimate fate. We could quote many more thinkers. We could quote many more contemporaries. We can see how this type of thinking has penetrated culture in profound ways. And it is at the core, the struggle for rule in this life It's a struggle that chooses to recognize God as the king or chooses to recognize self as the king. And it is 
in its ultimate understanding, the only way we can understand life with or without God and this gospel. There are two ways to live. (laughs) Two, with recognizing God as the king or recognizing yourself as that ruler. We see in the Bible that our sin constitutes a rebellion against the king. If God is the king and all life originates from him, he is the ruler of all things. That's what we spoke about last week together. This week we pose the question, if indeed God is the king, what does the king do when there is a rebellion against him? (laughs) And the answer that we see in the scriptures is that he delivers justice by executing judgment. What does the king do when there's rebellion against him? The king restores justice. And he does so through judgment. Friends, it can't be another way. Nobody wants to think about in our time the fact that God is just and that just justice requires something. But God won't let rebellion happen forever. His standard of justice is perfect and it must be met. And the reason why is that because God has these divine attributes that make up who he is. And many of these attributes are inextricably linked, which means they cannot be separated from one another. If they were, he wouldn't be God. This is true of his holiness, of his righteousness, and of his justice. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 says it this way. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Holiness and righteousness demand justice. Take a step back and think about that for a minute with me. You can't have holiness and righteousness in their total expression if you don't have justice. To be holy is to be pure, to be perfectly right in every way. To be righteous as it relates to God, God's righteousness is the attribute of moral purity as it is applied to his relationships. So God's righteousness is the application of his holiness to those beings around him. To be righteous means that you do what is right, that you think what is right, that you have purity and that you uphold what is right and good and pure, especially as it relates to those around you. So holiness and righteousness are linked in that way. God is perfectly righteous. And so what does a righteous king necessarily have to do when things aren't right? (laughs) Well, to uphold his righteousness, he needs to make them right again. (laughs) And this is justice. 
Justice is restoring things to their right place. And so, how does God, the righteous king of the world, restore all things to their right place? He does so through judgment. And judgment is the administration of justice. These are big themes, big words. We could talk about all these attributes for a very long time. But holiness, righteousness, justice, judgment, these are attributes and actions of God. They are who he is. And they are in response to our rebellion against him. You probably didn't think your sin was that big of a deal, did you? I know I didn't. But you know, it's not just what you do in your sin or your rebellion against God, it's, it's who you do it against. And perhaps the best illustration I've heard about this came from a pastor who described it this way. He says, suppose that a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? The student's given detention. Suppose during detention, the student punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended from school. Suppose on his way home, that same student punches a policeman on the nose. What happens to him? He finds himself in jail. And suppose some years later, that very same boy, now grown, is in a crowd to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, he lunges forward to punch him. What happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. In every case, the crime is precisely the same. It's just a punch. But the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. What comes from sinning against another being or another person is not the same as what comes when you rebel against the king of the universe. What comes from sinning against God? Well, the Bible tells us God's wrath and judgment. I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We're going to look at a number of different scripture passages during our time, but Romans 1 describes for us the logic of how and why wrath is the expression of judgment. This is what it says. Starting at verse 18, The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now pause for a minute with me. And as Paul gives us this big list, all manner of unrighteousness, we see a long list of sins here. I wonder if you see yourself struggling with any of them. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So Paul gives a description of what rebellion against God looks like, the process of it within humanity, and why in so many ways it is deserving of wrath and judgment. Here's just the summary. Here's, here's the, the flow of the logic. God's divine attributes are plain to all, namely his eternal power and divine nature. God makes himself clear to humanity. No one is without excuse in that way. Humans knew him. They recognized him as such, but they didn't honor him nor give him thanks. Instead, they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their darkened hearts, Paul says. And as a result, God let them do so, and they became increasingly sinful in all kinds of ways. That list of sexual sins followed by that big, long list of all kinds of sins that we can all apply to ourselves in different ways. And because of this, God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 2, 2, the very next chapter says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And we didn't think our sins were that big of a deal. Did we? I know I didn't. But God the King judges the rebellion of sinners. And so the warning 
is that judgment is coming. We've seen the logic anyway. I don't know if we feel it in our hearts yet, but we see the logic, don't we? God's the king, we rebel. What does a king do in the response of rebellion? Judgment. Justice is required. If God is going to be God, that is part of who he is, an attribute of him. The question then becomes, how is this justice administered? We see in the Bible that justice is administered through judgment in a variety of ways and in a variety of chronologies. We see from the very beginning that there's immediate judgment. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They sinned when they ate of the apple, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says this. It says, God, the Lord God sent them out of the garden. That's judgment. To work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at, at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Further, we see right away at the very beginning of this rebellion story that there is a curse of sin that is placed upon humanity. They would have enmity with Satan from that day forward. They would have pain in childbirth. They would have difficulty with the land. They would have strife and relational tension with one another. Rebellion against the king meant that everything else got harder. And that is a form of immediate judgment. We see in the Bible that sometimes God judges through human agents. Throughout the Old Testament, God used other nations and other people to discipline and to judge his people, Israel. Likewise, at times, he used Israel to discipline and to judge other nations while they were rebelling. There are many examples of this, but maybe most pointedly, Isaiah chapter 45 talks about God, the king of the universe, raising up and anointing a pagan king named Cyrus to judge Israel. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 13 says that God uses the governments of the world in a similar way. It says this, it says in Romans 13, 4, he, the human ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the, wrong, on the wrongdoer. So God judges through immediacy, sometimes. Sometimes he judges through human agents. Sometimes God defers his judgment, and his judgment is expressed through our mortality. Genesis 2.17, God warns Adam and Eve, even before they sin, of what would happen if they rebel. He says, this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Physical death was never supposed to be the reality for people. It's the consequence of judgment, which comes because of rebellion. Likewise, New Testament, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
so death spreads to all men because all have sinned. Death is a consequence of rebellion. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you see mortality is part of this judgment, but there's another judgment that's coming. God judges and disciplines during our human life, and we see that our life here on earth is not the end of our existence. Even though the entire world will come to an end, people will live on. And it says in Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after death comes judgment. There is a judgment that will happen after we are dead. Jesus warns about this judgment perhaps more than anything else. Many places and many times, Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Your rebellion is that bad, Jesus says, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Because God the king judges the rebellion of sinners. The phrase, be afraid, (laughs) be very afraid, was the tagline for a 1986 movie called The Fly. Be afraid. Be very afraid. If you Google that phrase today, you will get over 1 billion hits in 0.67 seconds. I did it yesterday. But the trick, as you know, is to be appropriately afraid of the right things. Because what people often fear is not always what should be causing that spike of adrenaline within them. Here are some examples. Are you afraid to fly? 0.00001% chance of dying in an airplane crash. However, on the other hand, the car insurance industry estimates that the average driver will be involved in three or four car crashes in their life. And the odds of dying in a car crash are about one to 2%. Are you afraid of heights? It's the second most reported fear behind public speaking. (laughs) Tell me about it. Your chance of being injured from falling, jumping, or being pushed from a high place is about one in 65,092. The chance of having your identity stolen is one in 200. (laughs) Do you have a fear of being killed by a bolt of lightning? 
The odds of that happening are about one in 2.3 million. You're much more likely to be struck by a meteorite, believe it or not. Those lifetime odds are about one in every 700,000. How about dogs? They bark and their bark really is worse than their bite. Your chance of suffering a dog bite is about one in 137,694. On the other hand, your chance of being injured while mowing the lawn is about one in 3,600. How about sharks? You are much more likely to be killed by your spouse. which is about one in 135,000 compared to one in 300 million. You won't ride a roller coaster if you have the patience to stand in line. The chance of a roller coaster injury is one in 300 million. But if you play with fireworks on the 4th of July, you're really playing with fire because the chance of injury is one in 20,000. The key is to be afraid of the right things. Are you afraid of hell? because you should be. Are you afraid of it for those in your family, for those who you know and who you love? Are you afraid of the right thing? God the King judges the rebellion of sinners. It has to be that way. You don't typically want to think about that. Most of us don't. Most of us want to be inspired and to be encouraged, but inspiration and encouragement that is only this deep will only take you so far. When you're inspired and encouraged based off of even deeper and greater realities, it actually is enough to carry you through all of your days. And this justice of God that we don't like to think about and the horrors of hell which we never talk about actually motivate a variety of really good things in us. Here's just four. Did you know that the final judgment satisfies in so many ways our inner desire for justice in the world? You know that sense of turmoil that you feel? That sense of anger that you have when you witness unfairness? Some of you are higher on that justice scale than others. If you look at your kids, if you have multiple kids, you might be able to pick out the one that's really angered by injustice. We have that in our family. But all of us to one degree or another, when someone's family member is taken away because of senseless violence, we sense injustice. Or when a child dies of hunger because a brutal regime is withholding food from its own people. Or when someone is passed over at work due to their skin color or their gender. The list of injustices in this world go on and on and on. And in each case, you want justice. You want it that way. You want things to be made right. And you should. We all have this inner desire to see things come back to the way they're supposed to be. God's reign as king will ultimately be marked by a restoration of final justice that is completely fair. 
in its effect. Romans 2.11 says that God shows no partiality. Nothing slips past him. Nothing is treated in a manner that is inconsistent with his righteousness and his holiness. They're inextricably linked in that way. Revelation chapter 20 tells us about how this justice is going to be evaluated. In verse 12, when it gives the picture of the final judgment, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. God sees and he knows and he administers true justice. God, the king, judges the rebellion of sinners. The second thing that this justice motivates in us is that it empowers us actually to forgive people freely. Well, you say, how does that happen, Pastor? I don't exactly understand. When somebody does something against me, I don't know that I want to forgive them. I actually want to get back at them. And that's precisely the point. Because we don't have to take vengeance because we know that God will ultimately set things right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay And so even though justice might be delayed much longer than we emotionally want it to be, our place is not vengeance. And when we take things into our own hands to exact vengeance, if you've ever done that before, you know that it ultimately doesn't give you the satisfaction that you think it will, number one. And number two, things don't work out the way that you think it will. You think it will provide immediate gratification and that you will be the one to restore perfect justice in the world and it never, ever works that way. Why? Because vengeance belongs to God. And if that's true, then you actually have the opportunity to forgive. The third thing that final judgment motivates in us is Righteous living. If we know that judgment is coming, we have the motivation to be faithful to the king in our daily choices, not as a means of earning his favor or earning our salvation or earning our forgiveness, but as we look ahead to the eternal reward that Jesus gives. Paul speaks about this in a lot of different ways. He gives this incredible hope and certainty that he will avoid judgment And that all the people who put their faith in Jesus will avoid judgment as well. While at the same time standing in an appropriate fear of that judgment day that is coming. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Fourthly, final judgment prompts evangelism. In the Old Testament, the message of the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, was 
a message that the prophets gave to the people to turn back to God as their king, lest they be judged. Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 says, say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And in the New Testament, Peter tells us that God has a purpose in delaying this final judgment. There's a reason why upon your sin or upon even the end of your life that judgment is not immediate in its effect. It says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I don't want to be judged by God for my rebellion. And I don't want the people I know to be judged by God for their rebellion. The time of that judgment has not yet come. And so we now have the opportunity to help others understand the very simple truth that there is two ways to live. You can live under your own rule or you could live under God's rule. God is the ruler of the world and everything in it. We all reject God's rule by running our own lives, our own way. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Those are the first three points of our six points in the gospel outline. And they point us to a need for a savior. Friends, nobody likes to um, think about, as we've mentioned, the nature of judgment or the difficulty and the horrors of hell. If we're honest, very often we don't even like to be reminded about it on Sunday. <laughs> Much rather hear a sermon about how God has your back in hard times. But the good news of the gospel is that you can escape judgment. And next week, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about that in greater detail. But if judgment is justice served, there is a person who has come and borne that judgment for you so that justice could be served. Jesus came to bring us back under the rule of the king. He also came to bear the weight of judgment that I deserve and that you deserve and that any who believe in him deserve. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. We read the first half of that just a couple minutes ago. It says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, here's the second half. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ came to pay the penalty for judgment. 
He did that for you so that you could go back and live under the rule of God. Pearl Harbor demonstrated that not only were an admiral and a general unprepared, that the authorities were unprepared and the whole nation was in a lethargy of self-satisfaction. In spite of all of the evidence that an attack would come, the people were amazed when it did. The same is true for the approaching judgment of God, friends. It is coming upon the world. The Bible tells us that judgment is coming. People are warned to flee from the wrath of God. They're warned that sudden destruction will come upon them. It will come as suddenly as a stroke of lightning goes from east to west and as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. And in spite of all of the warnings, the world sinks in its lethargy of self-satisfaction. But it will be awakened by a blow far more rude than Pearl Harbor. For just as the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, so are his judgments. Let's pray. Father, we have two requests. That you, by your spirit, would be doing a work so deep in us that we know and that we feel the weight of rebellion and the fear of judgment that we would be a people who no longer casually look at your kingship or no longer minimize the nature of our rebellion. Father, our second request is that you would give us a deeper delight and hope and joy in the one who redeems us from judgment, the Lord Jesus. And as we continue in the weeks ahead, God, help us to see him more clearly, to see even more profoundly the nature of this salvation, to feel the joy that it brings and the hope that it offers. In his name we pray, amen.